Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. So this little chant, it means, um, help me go from untruth to truth, from not knowing to knowing. Help me move from darkness to light, as in uh, I'm stuck in a rush towards an illuminated place. Help me get rid of the poison that I have accumulated over this lifetime and move me to the Amrita, the kind of divine elixir of knowledge and healing. <laughs> so, um, and we thought to, I thought to start with this today because we wanted to talk a little bit about what it means to be a teacher in this uh, tradition of Ashtanga Yoga uh, that we have. So first of all and foremost, uh, from a, like a root perspective of, uh, of yoga, like the traditional perspective, we are working within what's called the Guru Shisha Parampara. We are working within a system that we call the Guru Shisha Parampara. So Guru, Guru means the, a great teacher, a grand teacher. Uh, guru means the one that removes darkness. Also means the heavy one. Not just in fact necessarily, but as in uh, someone that has great substance, great weight to them. Um, Shisha is a disciple or a student. <clears throat> uh, the old fashioned, old time Indian way of learning was that there was someone that was knowledgeable and then there was someone that wasn't but would want to learn. So that person that 
disciple, that student, would move in with a knowledgeable person, would move in with the guru, and maybe live there with uh, the guru and his family. Back in those days, it was mostly men. That was the Indian tradition. But in the Guru Shishya Parampara, it doesn't necessarily need to be yoga. It could also be that you want to study astrology, Indian astrology. It could also be that you want to study music or dance or anything, philosophy, anything like that. So the structure in those days was there was not um, schools like we have today. There was not universities and educational institutions like that. So there was the Gurukula. That was the setup where the, the, the Guru was teaching and he had one, two, three, four students, however, and there was um, So there's different kinds of guru, Gurus and um, I think that the one that I am most inspired by is the one that we call a Kalyana Mitra. So what does it mean? Kalyana means someone that guides and Mitra means friendly or friend. So the friendly guy, so the Guru is friendly guy. When we're working in the yoga system, we're also working with a particular type of um, aspect of living. The yoga guru is a disciplinarian. The yoga guru is there as a disciplinarian. So we, we pay a lot of attention to that relationship between the student and the teacher, where the, te- the student is obedient. That's how George used to say, good student is obedient student. <laughs> so the idea is that the student is obedient and that the uh, uh, the guru is willing to to share. Those two are very important. So um, it is stated many places in the Indian old Indian literature, like in Panchat, so forth, that humility is the step stepping stone to um, to knowing anything, to getting informed, to getting anywhere, to progress. And the idea, of course, is that if we are thinking that we are knowledgeable already, how can we add more knowledge? But if we think, I don't know, please give me the information, then um, if we have that curiosity and that desire to learn, then we can actually learn. So the proposition in yoga is come in, come in to the shala not knowing. Um, I didn't do much martial arts, uh, but a little bit in the past. And um, a friend of mine had just returned from Japan and he was learning uh, Aikido. And he was a black belt in the one uh, style of Aikido. And he went to a new shala in Tokyo to learn to do uh, uh, Aikido there. And the first thing he did was he took off his black belt and put white belt. So black belt uh, signifies I am master. And white belt signifies I am beginner. So he put white belt, so when he entered, he showed I know nothing. If he had showed up with a black belt, it would have been a challenge to the teacher. That would, in that tradition, be that he comes to challenge the teacher to want to fight, to see who is there. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that in the Japanese uh, martial arts, many of them, maybe perhaps all of them, this is how it is. Um, I think it's a really beautiful way, very formalized, very beautiful, almost poetic way of going about it. And I wish that we had belts in yoga like that, that we could take <laughs> But we do not. Um, so, 
so the guru's job is not just to make us healthy. The guru's job is to help us be physically healthy, yes, but also spiritually healthy or psychologically healthy, mentally healthy, emotionally healthy. So the job of the guru is so much bigger than your average um, university teacher. You go to university and you learn, you take business module there. Your teacher's uh, job is to get you better at earning some money so you can take care of your life. For the guru, it is much more than that. It is to teach us students what it means what to be alive, what it means to be a human being, and what we need to hang on to and develop further, and what, what we need to let go of and discard to grow as spiritual entities, spiritual uh, human beings. So it's much bigger. The, by the end of the day, the yogi the perspective is that we're trying to liberate the soul. It's like a really ambitious project, right? So, and we start with putting your leg behind the head because we think that helps, but that's a whole other uh, conversation. Um, so, I thought to read a little uh, quote here from an Upanishad, <coughs> which says, the true, true teacher is a master in the field, in his field of knowledge, well-versed in the ancient texts, such as the Vedas and Padimshas and so forth. If we look at that from a Western perspective, maybe we also need to know something about running a yoga shards or some business. We need to know something about anatomy, perhaps, uh, and so forth. We need to know something about the environment we function within, such as um, uh, these days, there's some things that seem to me that's very important, such as trauma sensitivity. We're all learning that, that even though most people look fine, some underneath, there's some trauma for most people underneath. Um, so we need to begin to tune a little bit into that and so forth. There's, there's things to uh, consider. Yeah, this is better. Can you hear better? Let me try it down here. No, it's perfect. How about this? Can you hear? I just changed it again. Can you hear? You all right, people in the machine? You can hear? Okay. So the true true teacher is a master in in his field of knowledge. He is well versed, or she is well versed in the necessary texts. Is free from envy. Um, knows yoga, lives a simple life, that of a yogi, and has realized the knowledge of Atman, the soul. That there is more to living than just a material object, a material um, uh, thing. So when we say material in yoga, we don't mean necessarily, you know, the Mercedes-Benz. We, we mean this body, that there is more than the body, that's more than my physicality, that's more than what I think, and that's more than my emotion. What is beyond that? What is that thing beyond that? Well, you choose your word. word. You pick your word on that. You call it God, you call it the soul. Uh, Patanjali, uh, who wrote the Yoga Sutras, he calls it Anya. That means the other. 
That other thing, that's all. Very kind of liberal, very open about it. So we can choose what we're going to call ourselves. Little more uh, quoting here from the Upanishads. The guru is one who initiates, transmits, guides, illuminates, debates, and corrects a student in the journey of knowledge and of uh, self realization. The attribute of the successful guru is to help make the disciple into another guru, one who transcends himself. One that becomes a guru onto himself, driven by inner spirituality and sound principles. Um, so sound principles, what is that? So when we look at yoga and we talk about what is important to be a decent human being, we look for um, the Ashtanga Yoga, the, the, the jewel of Patanjali's teaching, which starts with Yama Niyama. So if we want to know what it means to be a, an ethical person in yoga, then the yamas is where we look first, the niyamas is where we look second. And it's very simple. We look to those for inspiration. We look for those to measure ourselves up if our actions are what they're supposed to be. It's very simple. We won't go over them now. You have heard them 10 times before. You will hear them 200 times more. So we will leave it at that right now. A um, couple more things. Um, so, <clears throat> for me personally, when I grew up um, and I went to school, I grew up in the suburbs outside of Copenhagen, Denmark. And um, it was a very average uh, school I went to. And some of my teachers were awesome. And some of my teachers were not so awesome. And I was a kind of uh, lazy student. So I um, tended to fare well in the faculties where the teacher was inspiring. And the faculties where the teacher was not inspiring, I couldn't find the ignition in myself to rise above the teacher's ability to, to teach in an inspiring manner. Unfortunately, I wish I, I, I could. So. Later on, growing up, I realized that that was a big hindrance for me. That when the teacher was not inspiring, when I was in front of someone that I was not inspired by, I would just like not be interested. And that meant that all the knowledge that that person potentially had would just fly straight over my head. I wouldn't get it at all. So personally, I made that a point to make sure to not just wake up when the situation was fun to do so. Does that make sense? In that way. Um, so, <clears throat> um, from my uh, uh, point of view, an inspiring teacher can create so much transformation in the student. Um, the student can just lean into that. And I'm sure that all of you have encountered uh, more inspiring, more transformative teachers in your, uh, in your childhood and less transformative teachers. And if you're going on to be a teacher in yoga, I would say figure out how you can teach this information with the most swung, with the most impact and power. Um, so here's a couple of things that I think is important for a teacher. Um, and that is to have curiosity and passion for the subject that we ourselves love what we're teaching. We are invested in that. 
And then that there's a genuine care for the people that we teach, the genuine care for whoever is in front of us. Um, and then I think it's important for a teacher to inspire us and to make us interested and curious in playing with ideas, to think deeply, to take challenges within the field of study, uh, and perhaps even uh, take up, uh, be so inspiring so our students want to take up a career in this, whether it's yoga or, or whatever it is. Um, but of course, uh, the most important for the teacher is not just to inspire the student and have a good time together. We see that a lot in yoga these days. What is even more important is that what is taught is substantial and useful and leads somewhere. So the, so the subject matter must be useful and the style which we uh, pass it on, hopefully as inspiring as possible. Anything you want to add? A little more to say, then I can also just finish. <clears throat> well, I think that the question of teacher versus guru is something that has to be flushed out by all of us. You know, when we conflate the two and we think that everybody who stands at the front of a yoga room is a sort of enlightened master, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and a disservice to that human being who's on the path as well. So in kind of our contemporary world of kind of uh, equals along the path, seeking spirituality, it's important to recognize that there's a meeting point between yoga teacher and yoga student, and that that is a meeting between equals. At the same time, there is also an acknowledgement, perhaps from the student's perspective, that the teacher has some experience that they don't have. Um, in our Ashtanga yoga method, um, there for many, many years was no official kind of training. And there was this almost mystical experience of the Tabi Joyce saying when someone was ready to teach. And there were people who had been, um, who were very qualified by all of the standards that Tim has just outlined. You know, they've studied the text, they've, you know, maybe they're even teaching, but they don't tell him because they were afraid or something like that. And then he never gave them sort of his permission to teach. And it was just kind of this mysterious thing. They've been coming to India and practicing with him for 10, you know, someone that was there for 15 years and they just never got that formal approval from Patavi Joyce. And then the next, and someone else would come and they'd be practicing for a much shorter period of time. And then he would tell them, now you have to teach, you know? And so there was this kind of mysterious question of what are the, what are really the qualifications and can they be measured in kind of a checklist? And so here we have a, a kind of um, a schism between a traditional methodology and meaning a lineage-based practice, which comes from the Guru Shisha tradition, that is, is sort of trying to bring into the tangible, the intangible. So when Tim talked about spending time with your teacher, there's something that is sort of, that, that, that is presumed within that, that Tim talks about a lot, which is called the transmission. And this is when you spend time around someone, they rub off on you. And they rub off on you in ways that your mind and your conscious mind isn't aware of. And it's that kind of intangible, um, kind of feeling that you get from spending a long time very close to the bright flame of, of, of a teacher that then transforms you. And this is something that, 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 you know, you can check off all of the boxes of the information. And if that transmission hasn't kind of penetrated into the heart space, then 
all the information in the world is kind of not enough to really qualify one as someone who can hold the flame of the lineage, particularly in the Ashtanga method. So when we think about all of the qualifications, we have to remember the intangible. We have to remember that there's something else that's kind of going on. It's hard to put our fingers on, but it's this feeling of, you know, you want all the information that's out there. At the same time, if you think like 3,000 years ago in India, you know, there was a strong Guru Shisha tradition and there were no anatomy lessons, right? There was no app on our phone that would help us find the piriformis and figure out what it did, right? And there was no, um, you know, there, there, there was no kind of formal training in that way and, and, and not as much analytical information about the body as we have today. And yet the knowledge was there. And so we have to think about that and respect that. I, when I came into... When I came into the practice, um, the thing that most struck me was actually how little technical information I was given. And that was the atmosphere that I came into the practice with. Over the last more than, you know, more than 20 years, the, the Western world has given a lot of emphasis on the analytical um, dissection of what the physicality of the asanas are and what in terms of the parameters of how we should um, operate a yoga business and be yoga emissaries in, in our world. There's been a lot of kind of dissection about that from an ethical standpoint, from a community standpoint, from a social, um, you know, a social awareness standpoint. And that's all well and good and very useful. And at the same time, that is somehow still this analogy, like a finger pointing at the moon. You know, it, it's something that, that will help us, but it's not necessarily the, the sort of heaviness that, that Tim was talking about when he said that the guru represents kind of a heaviness and that heaviness is also density and that heaviness is also like a weight that kind of brings us out of the unfocused mind. So again, when we come back to what are the qualifications of the practice, there's to teach the practice, you can have all of the information and still not be qualified to teach. And this is why Patabi Joyce always said, no teacher trainings, you know, because some person can go through a training and they have all the information, but they're still not qualified. And another person can never do a training, but because of the experience that, that they've gone through in their practice, they have some foundation to, you know, to teach from. So I was there in a conference when someone asked Patabi Joyce, why no teacher trainings and what qualifies you to be a teacher in the Ashtanga method? And his answer was that, um, not in perfect English, obviously, because he didn't speak such perfect English, but he said essentially he was looking for when the student had gone through something, some transformation. Here's where they started. So he saw them when they started and he wanted to see them go through something and transform and then become something sort of more awakened, you could say, with more light. So he wanted to see them use the tool of the practice in such a way so it helped them. And that created the firm foundation of them to be able to teach. And the more that the teacher experiences, the more qualified they are, the more they go through it. And for those of us who are doing this course uh, over the last week, Tim used a word yesterday called bhavana. And this is a, a Sanskrit a, a Pali word that's very closely related to a concept of knowledge. And um, in this concept of bhavana, we're interested in um, getting close to the, the experiential feeling base of the knowledge. And the way that this comes across is that there's no intellect that can be a substitute for that which we experience to be true and which we get the feeling for 
in our bodies and in our minds. And so we keep practicing until we get that. Um, and then this is, and then within that framework, we kind of add on extra stuff that can make us more effective, you know? And this is where we have some of the methodology that I think Tim is going to talk about next. Yeah, so um, we were just spending a week here with 25 people, inspired people from uh, <laughs> many places in America and the world. Um, and uh, we thought to talk just like, just very basic about what does it require specifically to go in and teach Ishtanga Yoga? Uh, we thought that might be interesting. And we think that there's very few hard um, points that in Ashtanga Yoga actually to get to know, uh, to learn to teach it. But, so, but some of the things that we think is very important is that we must have our own practice well established. It must be there. Because if I am going to try to bring Amy through some kind of transformation, I must have gone through some kind of transformation myself for that. I cannot just have read Kino's uh, wonderful book and then um, learn the asanas because my body was able to do them and then that's it. It's just not enough. There needs to be a deeper experience uh, about the practice in that way. Um, and then um, adding to that, there needs to be a deep understanding, experience of the goodness that is within this method. And that there is an experiential ex um, relationship to the goodness, to the benefits that this practice can, uh, can bring and that we have, the, so to speak, understanding and faith in it. Because we know it, because we've tried it. We know this is good stuff. That's why we push it on to the next uh, person. Uh, that must be there. Then we have to memorize what is memorizable. We have to memorize what there is to memorize, such as the names of the asanas, the order of the asanas, the, if we're breathing in here, we breathe out there, where the breathing lies, we call it the vinyasa system. We have to uh, know that. And then we have the counts. When we start to know the counts, um, or so forth, we begin to understand a little bit deeper what is the intention with this transition and that transition starts to uh, dawn on us. Then, of course, we need to know the opening and the closing mantras. Why? Because the opening and the closing mantras is basically paying respect. It is saying, I am grateful to everyone that has walked this path in front of me. I am grateful for this information that is so dear and so ancient that it has made it through time, through all these people that have taken it on. And now through the teacher in front of me, it is being presented to me so I can learn that. But that's a basic um, uh, respect and appreciation and conscious reminding ourselves that that's what's going on. That's the opening mantra. And the ending mantra is a meta mantra, which is why we say all this good stuff that come to me, I hope it will come to everybody. And you can even maybe add to that, I will do my part that this information is available to more people than just myself. See how much I benefit. I hope also you will benefit everybody in every part of the world, in every realm of the universe, we say, is that. Um, so <clears throat> by the end of the day, perhaps uh, that gratefulness and respect for the lineage 
is, in my opinion, I think in both of our opinion, absolutely necessary. It's like you kind of have to live and breathe it. You kind of have to feel that. How do you get that? So I think one of the, the best ways to get it is if you have curiosity about these teachings, if you have curiosity about anything that has to do with yoga, and specifically since we are in Ashtanga Yoga, so that has to do with Ashtanga Yoga, and start from one end. And I can tell you this, that the more you learn, the less you know. In the beginning, you think, oh, I just need to know this and this and this, and then I'm cool. Then you learn this, you realize there's a reason for that. There's another text I need to read. There's another asana I, I need to learn. And the more we study, the more we realize how vast the sea of knowledge is within uh, yoga. And it just never ends. When I teach, uh, so I have uh, been taught uh, the Yoga Sutras by a man in India. His name is Nagaraja Rao. He's an amazing teacher. He's not really. He's been teaching his entire life. And uh, he is uh, celebrated and almost famous around the world for his uh, teachings. And we were just in Mysore, <clears throat> and one of my fellow students asked, how did you come to teach Sanskrit and yoga philosophy? Was that a calling for you? And he said, no, I was born in a very poor family and we could, life was very difficult. My father was not there. I was there with my siblings and my mother. It was very hard. Um, I was told that I could study in the university um, if I took up Sanskrit studies, they were for free and you got free food in the cantina. So by doing that, he had the possibility to study and eat every day. So by his studies, he could later support his family and um, he could eat every day while he did that. That's why he did it. Now he's like considered one of the greatest that there is in, in these studies. Um, anyhow, but I th there's no doubt about that uh, Professor Rao, over the time, he uh, developed a great curiosity for the for uh, for um, Then, I think in our opinion, if you want to dabble in Ashtanga Yoga, you got to make it to India, to Mysore, at least once, just to see if you like it. These days, who is the head of our lineage that is Shalak? Why? Because Patabi Joyce put him there. So there's also Manju Joyce, which is um, Patabi Joyce's son and Shabbat's uncle. There's also Saraswati, which is uh, Patabi Joyce's daughter and Shabbat's uh, mother and, and so forth. But Patabi Joyce, who is kind of like the lineage uh, holder from Krishnamacharya, passed that lineage holding on to Shabbat. So in our opinion is like, there's amazing teachers out there in the West also and in India also. But this is the, the flame of the flame. This is where the whole thing in, in initiated. And this is who is supposed to take this, this, this on, the core of this tradition on. So at least if you <coughs> practice this, if you want to teach this, if you want to go deeper with this, at least make one pilgrimage to see if you like. And if you don't like it, you don't need to go back. But if you like it, you can go again, it's possible. So, um, yeah, I think that's what I had to say. And there's of course more to know, but I think at least these are the basics. This is, uh, this is
I would also like to add that, um, you know, something in you has brought you here to this moment. So something in you has kind of risen up almost like a kick from within that said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to practice that's on you. And without that kick from within, there's no lineage because it's the students that make it possible for the grace of that river of teachings to continue to flow. So by acknowledging that within yourself, you can recognize, oh, I'm already on the path. I don't need to do anything else. How many other people are there right now in the city that are doing something else with their Saturday morning, you know, all over the world, people are not practicing yoga all over the world. People are recovering from hangovers <laughs> and, you know, they've taken decisions that have led them off the spiritual path. So it's this, it's this kick from within that you answer. And it's this idea that, you know, the, all of, as, you know, all of the teaching of, of, of these great teachers and this knowledge, this river of grace is there. The moment that the student feels, oh, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about going to Mysore. I want to do, what's this Ashtanga method? Let me try it for a month and see what happens. And then when that kick from within kind of gets more fed, and then you say, well, I, I want to do another month. Oh, I want to do it again. Well, who's this person in India that, that, that I heard about? I can't remember the name. It's, it sounds weird, but so, so how do I go? Uh, what's that? When you feel that questioning within you, that is the, the, the sort of the spirit within yourself that's kind of yearning for more. And so to answer that curiosity, to go in with that, um, is, is sort of you saying yes to the spark of knowledge and intelligence within yourself. And, you know, there are some really interesting things about that some of the great teachers of the past say about, you know, the, 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 the requirement on the students. So it's very important to acknowledge that this, that this lineage is powerful. This is powerful. This isn't like, let me do some ab exercises on Saturday. There's something intangible and transmissible within this lineage-based practice that has the power to change your life. And that sounds really positive on one level, but we don't realize that we're very attached to the life that we might have. And even though we think, well, I want to change my life, I want to become more enlightened, I want to have curiosity about the lineage, I want to go to India, but we don't realize, oh, well, what will happen? Then suddenly we'll get new kicks from within, you know, new kicks from within that might, that might suddenly change your life. We might realize, oh, I want to go to India for two months. What do I have to do to do that? Well, I need to make some changes with my work, with my family. Oh, I want to be closer to a teacher. So then maybe you need to move. And then you think, oh, goodness, well, I want to eat differently so that my body feels really good for the practice. Oh, no, I need to change my diet. Oh, I, I want to learn these yoga sutras. Oh, wait a minute. They're in Sanskrit. I need to learn Sanskrit. Oh, help me, Lord. You know, wait a minute. I want to practice every day. So what time do I need to go to bed to practice every day? Oh, goodness, I need to make serious life changes. And then six years later, your life has changed. And you gave up a lot along that path. So you will pay in some ways for that transformation. And that payment is kind of the qualification of, of your teaching, you know, your willingness to give to yoga. This is what David Swinson called yoga will destroy your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so be careful, right? So there's, there's this other, um, 
this sort of this kind of um, other idea that there's a moment when the student is ready. And until that moment, the teaching cannot happen. There's a moment and we, we, we you know, the, 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 that, that moment is something that can't be rushed, can't be forced. When the moment that the student is ready, then at that moment, everything starts to fall into place. So when we think about who should do yoga, it's everybody that should, that has that kick from within that says, oh, I want to do this. And then that person, they should, they do it. And then the teacher's job is to meet that inspiration as much as possible and to pull out all of the tools in their toolbox and figure out well, what's going to inspire this student? What's going to inspire that student? And what, how do I meet that individual? Maybe this one, they don't really care about Sanskrit, but they love backbending. All right, let's work on that for a little bit. This one hates backbending and loves Sanskrit. Awesome. Let's go there for a little bit. One responds to a lot of attention. Another one is like, leave me alone. I just want to be in the back of the room. So, uh, the versatility of the experience of having gone through all of that and being, being that student at different times and being able to hold that kind of totality of experience is so important along the path. I think we would even say that the students, the potential for learning is proportional to the teacher's ability to feed their curiosity. So it makes sense. There's so many aspects we can learn in here. And if the student is curious about something, if we as teachers, we can feed into that, then the student will learn more and faster uh, than if we insist on a different curriculum. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and especially keeping within the parameters of the tradition. Okay. Right. So then this is one thing that Tim mentioned before is, you know, the teacher has a loving attitude towards the student, but we have to understand, you know, that that loving attitude isn't always like just, you know, roses and rainbows. Sometimes a loving attitude is, you know, look, your curiosity about um, trying yoga while, you know, having wine is maybe not the best option. Right. So, yeah, goats like, oh, OK, I, I really appreciate that you love goats, but we're not going to bring them into the shala today. Our floors are not built for that. So we can kind of, you know, end that some curiosities that, that deviate off the path. Right. And this also is a form of the way to create that loving atmosphere, encouraging atmosphere for the student. So it's not all just everything you do is awesome. Sometimes what the student is doing is harmful to themselves. And it's harmful to the path, potentially even harmful to the lineage. And it's the teacher's responsibility in that moment to figure out the most, um, you know, the most approachable way and yet compassionate and effective way to communicate that. Right? And that can be very challenging. A lot of people who do yoga are a little non-confrontational. You know, you see someone and then they brought their goat to class with a bottle of wine and you're like, well, how am I going <clears> to... <throat> um, <laughs> to find the way. Here we don't have goat, we only have three-legged dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It creates enough, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think we could open it up to some questions. Yeah, so that was a little bit of chit-chat from our side. Um, and we thought to do a little Q&A and maybe there's some questions and I think you probably have some maybe. Why don't we start with one from the, from the chat and then yes. people become brave here after the chat. Charlotte asks, how do we know when we have found a genuine teacher? Hmm. Yeah, good question, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look 
This is where I find that Patanjali is useful. So again, where do we look for that? We look to the Yamas. Is this teacher based in the Yamas? What are the Yamas? Yamas is ahimsa, which means is intently um, not um, in a harmful way, in any which way. There's no harm going on uh, with this teacher. Secondly, is uh, Satya, is the this teacher trustworthy? Is this teacher truthful? Is, is he, she teach, uh, telling the truth? Is she, he doing what he says and saying what he does? Yeah? And um, is that there? Next, we say Asteya. We say, don't take what's not yours. So, for instance, uh, Deborah's process is not my process. I'm here to facilitate. Uh, Deborah's process not to push her into my process. If I think that she could do, maybe she could be my star student. Oh, let's make her my star student really quickly so I could get famous. Oh, this is none of my business. You know, that would not be a very good idea. And there's more like that. So we can look to the Yamas and we can weigh our teacher up against these, uh, these five principles. That's a really good start. But by the end of the day, you, it's like trial by fire. You have to test, you have to be there with that, and you have to figure out where, over time if it works. There is one indication though. That is, take a look at the teacher's students and see how they fare. If they are amazing practitioners, but they are all uh, assholes, then there might be an issue. Yeah. There might be an issue with the teacher. Who is he attracting? Who is she attracting? This is the, the last part of what you said is how the Dalai Lama suggests to judge mm -hmm. a, a spiritual community. Um, he says that if you want to find, you want to find a spiritual teacher, go in and look at the long-term students, you know, look at the people who have been practicing whatever that method is for 20 years. And then ask yourself in 20 years, do I want to be like that? And then if the answer is yes, then continue down the path because the teacher might be flawed. But if you like what you see, then you'll be assured to go in that direction. And in that way, we can make space for, you know, the, we can make space for the trial and error. And we can use empirical evidence to counteract that kind of feeling of infatuation that we might have for a new teacher. Um, at the same time, w w there should be something that it like draws you like a moth to a flame, that something is just like, I just want to be around this community, this presence, that's something in you that just says, I just need to be there. I don't know why. I just feel better when I'm there. I need to be there. And then that, as long as that is there, plus the empirical evidence, you can probably be assured that you're on the right path. There's a lot of empirical evidence, but you don't feel a pull. It's not your place. You know, something can be really, really awesome, but it's just not for you. So if you feel those two things are present, the empirical evidence, look, the long-term students, they're, they're good. And then I feel, you feel that draw from within, then follow that and make space for, you know, the human error, make space for yourself to get it wrong sometimes, make space for the teacher to make some mistakes, but understand that together, those two elements are kind of fueling your progress along the path. Um, it's also extremely important to think about that the relationship between the teacher, even if it is a true teacher, will not always be pleasant. There may be times when the teacher is telling you things that you don't want to hear. 
You know, there might be times that you want something from your teacher, your teacher's not giving to you. And this may bring up a lot of um, difficulty within yourself. And there are many people at that moment that think that now it's time to make a teacher trade, you know, like, let's go around and figure out like uh, what who I can trade my teacher for. And we try to make petitions and treat the sort of, you know, practices a little bit like a buffet. Let me go and eat, try a little bit of this, try a little bit of that and make a new plate. Um, and, and, and that can be very damaging to both the teacher and the student because then, you know, Fatabi Joyce and Sarajihi, they both like to say, you know, um, many doctors can kill one patient, right? So, you know, or many, you know, a, lot of, a lighter one, right? Like many different cooks make a bad soup, right? I mean, that's maybe more light, right? But then, <laughs> you know, so then like you think about it, one, one person says, so you go to one teacher and they say, oh, you should do half primary series. Then the next teacher, no, you should absolutely do full primary series. And the next one says, I think you should do quarter primary series. And the next one is like, you should be doing second you know, and then you're like, I don't, I don't even know what to do anymore. And then you get confusion, but then you end up doing what you like and not really getting taught, you know, by anyone because we end up trading, trying to figure out which spice and which flavor we like just for that moment. So sometimes a teacher sometimes has, even though they may still meet all the requirements, may share something with you that's not the best news, you know, and, and they may, they may not give you attention when you want attention. They may give you too much attention when you don't want attention. And, and in that, in that way, we have to be willing to constantly go back to our rational mind and just say, well, you know, i this pull is still there within me. I still benefit from being here. Empirical evidence is still there. Let me not change. Let me stay the path. See what happens. Do we have a question from here? Sure, Alex, let's take your question. Um, what helps keep you guys going as teachers and students? So Alex, he asks, what helps Sheena and Tim, what helps you guys going? What keep keeps going. you going? Keeps you going as, as teachers and students? We were just in Mysore for a month and it was really awesome. And we hadn't been since before the pandemic. And I feel like that was a huge... Um, big dose of inspiration just to be able to be a student. So for me, I feel that one of the most important qualifications of, uh, of being a teacher is also making time to be a student because it's important, so as Tim mentioned earlier, to put on that white belt and just be like, I really have no, no knowledge of what's, you know, what, what's here. I need someone, I defer to an authority that's not my own and to make time for that whether that's going to Mysore or, and, and practicing there, if that's, if that's, you know, for, for, for me, you know, Shadaji is my teacher now. So I go, I, I'm, we're planning to go back again. And I also sit Vipassana. So for me to make time to go and sit meditation retreats, but any place where you're going to go and feel nourished, I think is extremely important to make time for that, to study, whether it's the yoga sutras or anatomy or some other texts or anything that's going to give you like a, a spark that you'll bring into your life. I think it's super important to keep that student attitude. 100%. And I would even go further. Like sometimes I meet some of my colleagues, and they uh, say, I don't really need a teacher anymore. I don't need a guru. I don't need someone to tell me to do this or that. I don't need a path in that way. I can, you know, I know enough myself. And when I hear it every time, I'm just like, wow. Like, I could never do it. You know, I need like the path to help me because without the path, I feel I'm a little bit lost. I'm a little bit 
by myself. And on a good day, it's not a problem. I can take care of myself just fine. But on a, on a rainy day, that's when I need it. That's when I need my community. That's when I need someone to stand up in front of me and say, do it again. That's when I need someone to help me figure out what the next step is. So for me, having uh, practicing with Shut Up and going to my show every year is, uh, I might I'd maybe say life-giving, you know? By the way, the, the, the saying is, um, find the lotus in the mud. Find the diamond in the teacher, not the mud. Yeah, we can always come up with something. Oh, I look at Amy twice, I can come up with something nasty to say about her. <laughs> you know what I mean? But is that what I want? You know, that's what it's that relationship that we try to say. Mm-hmm. Is there something to learn from Amy? You know, look look to that. Is Amy perfect? That's another story. By the way, another saying is your guru should live three valleys over. Don't have them live in the same place as you. You see the laundry every day, you're like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that keeps me going. And then one more thing that keeps me going. Like this week, for instance, Thursday, I think we were all tired this week, right? So why did I get out of my bed and practice on Thursday? Because I had to come in here and show some asanas later. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> maybe if I didn't need to go in and work with some asanas with you guys, in life. Hey, I'm going to take a day off and have two cups of coffee. But so the students that I work with, you guys that I work with, you make me, you, you bring me up to where I want to be. So I say my teacher brings me there and my students bring me there. That is in that I feel I function in that accordion. <laughs> Um, I want to know your opinion about wanting to become a teacher and kind of like follow this path, but then at the same time, is it possible to achieve being a really good teacher and walk down the path if you have another career that you don't want to let go of? Mm. Is that something that exists? (laughs) (laughs) So the question was, let me see if I can paraphrase. Um, if you're interested in becoming a teacher in Ashtanga Yoga, but you have another career path that you're also in love with, is it possible to combine? Is that right? Yeah. Something like that. Because I see that many teachers, they basically focus on being teachers and mm. that's like 100% mm. their passion. But I don't find myself, you know, having just doing yoga. Like I also like my career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of hard. It's like a day that I have every day. I mean, I think a lot of people do struggle with this, you know, but um, uh, it's this question of dharma, right? Like, what is my dharma in this life? What is my path? What is my calling? And there's no reason why you need to quit your job to be a good teacher, you know, as long as the job is not interfering with your ability to practice and teach. And as long as your job doesn't require you to do things that violate yogic principles, right? So if your job is like killing animals, then maybe um, it's it's probably maybe long-term not going to be so harmonious with the being a yoga teacher, right? Um, but if the job is in some way, you know, benefiting the world and bringing joy into the world and not violating the moral and ethical principles of, you know, the yogic path, then, then you can maintain your dharma. You can maintain your life path and, and supplement in your teaching into that, 
And then this also allows you not to treat teaching as a you know, financial proposition. So if you're supporting yourself in another way, it's such a wonderful space to then just say, I'm just teaching for the benefit of the students and for the benefit of myself, and I don't need to make money off of this. You, know, you could then donate your time. If, you, if your financial stability comes from somewhere else and you want to give back to the lineage in some way, that's a wonderful place to be in. Um, I've talked to so many people that have traveled to India and practiced there for a month, two months, six months, and then to make that possible, they had to quit their job to give six months of their life because they wouldn't get the time off. And that many other people struggled with this question of, I want to come back. How can I do this with my work? And so sometimes because they wanted to spend so much time in India that then they ended up quitting their jobs and just devoted themselves only to yoga. Um, but then I've known other people that have managed to negotiate like a month or two off work every year, every two years and maintain a career path and also a separate career path. And then also follow the trajectory of a deep, dedicated, deeply dedicated student, and then ultimately teach a little bit as well. Um, we have a, a friend of ours, Frances, who's, who's done that amazingly. And she's a very, very successful career. And she's been to Mysore many times. And she also teaches. So it's this really, so it is possible. We don't need to quit our jobs in order to be of service to the lineage. Robbie, I think you do that, right? You have a job, and then you're also practicing and teaching yoga. Right, yes. Any comments, any help for this young lady? Um, yeah, uh, I find that I'm able to uh, pay the bills with my, like, my career, and uh, it really allows me then to, uh, to not have to worry about the hustle, so to speak, with yoga and stuff. I will say, though, I'm very lucky in that I have my own business, which allows me to kind of set my hours and my parameters, so to speak, how much work I want to come. But it, it, took a, it took many years to get there, so to speak, you know, eight years. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I'm able to, to, do, to do both. Mm. Derek, you do too, right? Not right now. Okay. <laughs> He's like, yeah, don't call me. Um, so you mentioned before about um, a shift that is like that's when you're ready to teach. So um, for the like, I'm I'm already teaching, but I'm not sure I had that shift. So how do I know if like should I keep teaching? Should I stop teaching? Like I'm, I guess I'm just not really sure where like if, if I'm. Like, did I start like before I was ready or something like that? Mm. I think maybe perhaps we can talk about what it means to teach. You want to repeat the question for the? Oh yes. Um, so Amy said that was it you, Kino? Maybe that said that when we are ready to teach, there is a sh- happens a shift within us. And Amy, she's not sure that she found that there was such a dramatic event happening. So Amy says, I'm not sure if I should teach, if I started to teach too early, mm-hmm. or what's going on. Yeah. Um, maybe actually you should start. Right. Okay. Yeah, since it was my thing. Yeah, since I said it. Yeah, I made this thing about the shift. Yeah. So that shift, yeah, that shift in us is to a large degree not always recognizable by ourselves. And this is also why it's so important to practice with the teacher. 
because then the teacher recognizes it before we recognize it in ourselves. And we have no idea that we've gone through this thing because we're just like, we're in the trenches of our own spiritual warfare. You know, we're just sitting there facing this and facing that and working on our hip and what that comes up when we're going through a process and we're breathing and we show up the next day and we feel crappy, but somehow we do it and we get through and then we feel a little better and we're not sure. And then we keep practicing and then the next week we start again and then we just keep going and we don't realize that we're making progress. And we just think we're in the same thing. We, and, then, and then our teacher sees, oh, there's been a change. People around you will mirror the change back to you. And this is one way that, um, it, 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 again, it's useful to have a teacher that can verify and confirm that. Um, but the second thing that I feel is a really good verification from kind of the universe, you could say, is that if people are asking you to teach, you know, if someone's like, hey, will you teach? Like, whatever, whatever you're doing, I like it. Will you teach it to me? Like, they, they see that they, they can see from the outside that, hey, I want to be where you are and you seem to have some information or some something. So they're asking you to teach. And so when that's happening, that's kind of like a, maybe you don't have a teacher that says you're ready, but then the community around you gives you that mirror. The universe gives you that signal. And I think a lot of people um, make the decision, I'm going to start teaching now. And then they don't necessarily wait for those signals. And that's where I feel that some people end up pushing too forward and then what ends up happening is then, uh, you know, then you just lose your practice and then you end up struggling. But if you're in a space where the community around you is asking you and it sounds like they are, then that itself is verification enough. The second thing is the humility with which you're thinking about that is also enough to say that you're on the path and you're doing the work. And if you just continue down the path, it'll keep feeding you. I love this thing. My teacher was once who decided when I should start teaching, I didn't think I was like, we need to get you in a teacher spot. And I, I'm usually the one that people ask to stop their classes. Yeah. It's also like when we start to talk about teaching, it's like, if you're at a, if you're at a place where there's a need and there's, and you have the information for that need, if you don't sh- share that need, that's kind of a doubtful path, almost, you know what I mean? So if you know some yoga and someone there next to you is sick and they say, can you teach me some meditation to feel better? And you're like, I don't want to teach. It's like, yeah, you know, can you be a little nicer, you know? So I think that maybe sometimes the problem is, is like in our and Ashtanga yoga has changed. Like when I started in 99, it was like burnouts and hippies. Yeah. And even before I started, it was even more so. Well, I meet people now that goes on the Ashtanga path as a vocation. You know, that's going to be my career. I'm like, wow, you know, you're not even going to have a car. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to see your car in a year. But, um, So I think, you know, that's like, as soon as we think I want to cheat, then we like have this idea that we can now pay all our bills, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think necessarily that's what's going on. I think there's a, there's a, there's a slide, you know, there's a transition going on there from um, just starting to share what we do when people say, will you stop my class? And uh, it's that weird thing that you do, you know, and I think that's maybe all we need, you know.
And I think especially if you live at a place where that's not, where this information is not there. You could say like if you live in Kukulum, uh, Mysore, which is where the Shala is, and you decide, I want to start to teach Stanga Yoga, you can ask yourself, is it really necessary here? You know, is, uh, is my services needed here? Or there's this guy called Sharat around the corner. Does he, what does he know? You know so, so I think that is that also. But I think I've never had a shift here. Things like you, someone asked me to help me a little bit more, and I like a lot. And so on. We were just talking about how we were such different people now than... 20 years ago. That too. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about that. Isn't that the shift? Oh. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't was like, you know, I didn't wake up one morning and go, you know. <laughs> like I woke up 20 years later and I'm like, what happened to me? <laughs> like this is really sad. No. <laughs> Maybe one more. Well, maybe one more from here, one more from home, because we're okay, at twelve. Maybe, now. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question about the how does the aspects or the postures transform your mind? Because all the time, you know, everybody's saying that the asanas is about the transforming your mind or your emotions, but how does it actually happen? Like, is it like untangible, like you yes. said, or is it? Something, or is it a struggle, or I don't know. Yeah, so that's the question he's like, this thing that you yogi people say, that the, <laughs> that the asanas, they change the mind, how does that work? Is that yeah, right? that's my question. Yes. So yeah, how does yoga work? Yeah, so... Uh, let me see if I can get as least technical as possible. Um, you know the feeling when you feel a little bit like stressed out? Yeah. And, you know, you're a little worried, you know, maybe there's a pandemic going <laughs> around or something like this, or a little bit worried about the bills next month, or that person just crashed your car or something that's going on. And, um, it's hard to get a break from thinking about it and feeling that and living in that reality. And then you go to your yoga class and just for a moment, your mind stops thinking about it. And then when you come back to those thoughts, you're a little bit more, you come back to those thoughts from a little bit better place. So that's one way that it works. You could also get that from your local gym or going out with a friend to dinner. You know, that might set you in the same way. But um, I think yoga intense very clearly has a focus on making that happen. It's not incidental that that is happening. So that's one. So that will change your state of mind right in there from, oh my God, to I'm going to have to fix this problem which is a little bit more constructive. So <clears throat> what we're trying to do is we're trying to acknowledge what in our mind makes our life more difficult, unnecessary. So you could say uh, you need to go to work every day and you don't have a car, you know, um, you need to figure that out. But you don't need to flip out about it. 
you need to figure it out. So flip out about it is the unconstructive mind. It's not going to help. It's just going to take it down. Where figuring it out is the constructive mind. That's going to help you solve the problem. Does that make sense? So we're trying, so potentially, uh, who is our authority of yoga? He says there's two kinds of mind. One that is helpful to us and one that is not helpful to us. One that is congruent with with health and healing, and then one that is taking us down, that is neurotic by definition. Yeah. So, and yoga intends to make that shift for us. Um, then what we're doing inside this room on the, the mat is to present small challenges and problems, such as your hamstring is too tight, or um, you have to jump back every time. Where you have to get yourself tuned into how to do that. And in the process of learning that simple, but not necessarily so easy task, we get to know something about how we function. We get to know something about our psychology. For instance, every time I have to jump back, I think, oh no, poor me. It's much harder for me than anybody else in this room. Or I get angry. Why have to jump back? What is this is junk yoga? I did some other yoga. They didn't jump back. I like it better. Why are you telling me what to do? I paid you money. I should tell you what to do. <laughs> so whatever goes on in the head, we start to realize. So every time you come in and Kinesi says, jump back now, you get angry every time. <laughs> then you realize, oh, I have more anger than I thought. Then it's like, then we try to feel like it's a useful now. Is it of any reason there? You know, is it standard, does it stand between you and learning something which is potentially good? Then maybe you realize, oh, the anger is there. I think it's her, it's her fault. But actually, she's just asking me to do something that I really want to do. Or maybe I can find a way to do something else with my mind and become angry. Or find like some way to calm down that anger a little bit. Yeah? Just some small examples. Now, then when you can do it on your mat, and these very simple problems here, very simple uh, mechanics, then we can take it out there where things are complicated and it's all, everything's great on top there. In here, it's just like, are you jumping back? It's like, no, then it's wrong. All right, put your mind in that. It's very black and white, it's very simple. Something like that? Yeah. So what Tim's talking about is a concept that's often referred to as asana as a laboratory for life so that you get to kind of practice how we respond to challenges and difficulties and that's kind of like the psychology of how the asanas work but we, what we also have to continually remember is that there is something intangible and unseen and magical and mysterious about the lineage that there are energies subtle energies at work within us that are non-dissectable and intangible. And these asanas are working on those energy lines within us. These energies are, are constantly moving in our bodies, but we are, we are uh, not in control of them and unaware of them. And so the subtlety and the mystery of the asanas in terms of awakening and evoking a spiritual transformation is for us to experience, not for us to know with the intellect. And this is why we have to practice and practice and practice. And still we might not be able to define how it works. We just understand that when I practice, things make more sense. When I practice, I, I seem to be better at it being a human being. 
and, and some of it's the asana's laboratory for the psychology of, 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 of how to live a better life. And some of it is the unseen intangible benefits of stepping into the potency of a lineage based practice. This is what you could call grace. You can hear she drank the Kool Aid, right? <laughs> <laughs> so she believes in this, right? why. But um, so that she didn't, I don't think that Kino believed it the first day she showed up in practice. But she came back and came back and came back and she realized something good is going on here. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's good enough to bring me back here. And looking at the other people and looking at the husband going, yeah, it's better when you do yoga things, you know. <laughs> so then there's something that changes us. And uh, part of it is logical and part of it is like you can't quite figure out why, which is like beyond logic. So, and I think that's what you're talking about there. So there is that thing we're still trying to figure out what, what, why. Did, did you get an answer somewhat? Yeah. Okay. There's also more technical answers, but uh, that was some. Mm -hmm. so. Thank you. To do so one from the chat. And that's the last one. The last one. From Sylvia. How can we keep practicing and use the benefits of the practice in moments of difficulty when the mind is wandering, body is tired, emotions are present? Uh, I would say go gentle. And um, go in and try to find a little bit of um, discipline, enough discipline to get on your mat. And then remember what your practice yesterday did you, to you, or last year did to you. Did it make it make you worse, or did you make it make, did it make you better? Did it make you feel worse, or did it make you feel better? And then go in gently and tap into that thing again, and know that even while you're there and you're tired and you're grumpy and you would rather not right now, have faith because you know that in half an hour you feel better than you felt if you don't do it. Yeah, it's at that time when we feel that we want to quit. That's exactly the time when the practice can go the deepest for us because that's when we meet all of our obstacles. It's exactly the moment when we think, oh, I'm too stiff now, I'm injured. Oh, I feel really bad. Like, I just don't want to do this anymore. If you get on your mat that day and we accept whatever practice is, whether it's just standing on the mat and breathing or lying down on a bolster and breathing, then that creates this continuity, which kind of weaves a thread of, of progress in the spiritual journey of the practice. So we have to let go of the expectation that practice is performance. And we let go of that and understand that practice is practice. And that any anything constitutes practice that we're on the mat. So we don't need to achieve our highest form. Just the fact that we're there, that day we feel grumpy, our body hurts, maybe we are injured, the difficult life circumstances, you know, preventing us from really being with a lot of energy. But you go, you stand on your mat, you breathe. Maybe you just breathe five minutes in samastitihi and then lie down. That's okay. We accept it. We touched it. We've moved into the lineage. And then that was enough. And if we can accept that, then I think it's possible for us to really practice every day for our whole life. And we can let ourselves off the hook of needing practice to be, you know, a, a kind of, a, you know, a, a kind of physical thing that we achieve towards. And instead, we can understand that sometimes the body needs healing and sometimes the mind needs healing. And sometimes our emotional space and our space as a spirit needs healing. And if we can learn to use the modalities that are at our disposal, which are not necessarily jump back, jump through. The modality that's at our disposal in Ashtanga Yoga is awareness of breath, awareness of body, concentration of mind. This is what's called Tristana. And if that's present, 
however it looks like for you, then we're keeping the continuity of the practice. And it can bring us out of just functioning constantly on a, I feel good, I don't feel good. I like it, I don't like it. It's like there's some things that are good for us that we don't like to do. My favorite example of that is kale salad. I don't <laughs> yeah. It's like you have a donut here and you have kale salad here. It's like you want to go for the donut, but like the kale salad long term is going to be much better for us. And to begin to realize that is extremely healing for us. And we can do that by getting on our mat in the day when we are grumpy and happy. Everything is stiff and we don't have time. Finito? And end with some. Some? Some. prayer at the end. You want to say one? I just end with an old one. Here we go. Uh, me? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> my wife tells me that. Just <laughs> <laughs> the one old thing up. Thank you very much everybody for spending this Saturday morning with us and listening to us chit-chat and thanks for your questions and thanks for getting on that. Yeah. And shout out to your teacher. Um, was, we will hopefully open registration for his visit to Miami. We hope you all can join. Yes. So uh, on the 28th, his final visa acceptance, his biometrics is going through. So we're waiting. We're pushing the bottom for the registration. But a few days after the 28th of February. So hopefully next week. Registration, yeah. So stay tuned. We hope you all can join. And he will come here and he will teach from, I think it's the 29th of April to the 11th of May, basically the first two weeks of May. And we will be upstairs and he will teach myself style. And then the two weekends during this period, uh, we will be at a larger space where he will teach style classes. And everybody is uh, welcome. There are some requirements for the myself style. Shout out, he's being very careful. He has said people that I have that have practiced practiced with me in myself before, or students that have studied for minimum two months with authorized or certified teachers of me are welcome to join the myself. For the guided, everybody can join. There'll be an application process online. There will be an application process. Good. Thank you. Yeah. We hope to see you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.